0: I want to start off by just saying a few things before I get into the sermon. One thing that became very real to me this week that I just need to share and confess with you all is that sometimes as a pastor you preach at people and sometimes as a pastor you hear your own words and you have to obey. And so last week, uh, one of the things that I really pushed on was the importance of discipleship and intentionally discipling people in your lives and intentionally having someone disciple you before you. And, and I'll be honest, I've, I've made an attempt to intentionally disciple people in my life. And I, I've spent all my years as a professional minister, quote unquote, ordained minister, Asking around if someone would set me up with a mentor to help me out, and and I've I've been unsuccessful. But last week, after preaching, I heard my own words, and so I literally went out this week, and I found one, and I humbled myself before another pastor, and I asked, "Will you be my guide? Will you help me? Will you listen to me? Will you tell me when I'm wrong and push me when I'm right?" And uh, and that's really a humbling thing to do—to go to someone and ask them to teach you. But I did it, I heard my own words, and, and furthermore, I heard my own words that, uh, that you need to be discipling people and, and writing them down. And so I asked God, God, what will you have me do? And, and I heard God just clear as day say, you are to name 12 people who are yours, and I've begun the process of writing people's names down, and I'm up to three that I'm sure. I'm supposed to disciple and I'm praying God reveal to me who these people will be both in and out of the church. And so I want to tell you that when when a pastor preaches he does not preach at you. But he must hear his own words. He must hear the word that God is speaking through him. And I've gone this week and I have responded and I'm working on becoming the person that God is calling us to be so that when Uh, when God speaks to me to speak to you, that I must listen also. And I confess before you today that I'm not always everything I need to be. But I've left this place to become that. And so, I I hope you know that just because I get to stand on Sundays on three, three steps higher than you so that you can see me real good, that does not make me any better than you. I'm as human as you are and as broken as you are, and I struggle as much as you do, and there are things that I need to continue to do as well. And this week, I heard God's voice say to me, go and be better, and I listened. And I hope that when God speaks to you as well, that you will listen and obey and go and do as well. I tell you a lot of Disney stories, and I know that. But you get another Disney story from me today. I don't really watch much TV other than sports and Disney. And so uh, you're going to get a sports and a Disney illustration today, and you're just going to have to deal with that, because that's what you picked when you picked me. But uh, the one movie uh, that I've watched probably more than any other movie my entire life is Beauty and the Beast. This is not how I painted my life when I was 18 years old and pushing on to adulthood. I did not see that I was going to be doing this. Today in our service this morning is is my friend Danny, who lived in Ohio with me as well and has moved down here. And he used to help me a lot at my last church. And poor Danny has also probably seen Beauty and the Beast more times than any other movie, because he would come and help me with music for church and all sorts of things for the church. And Mackenzie would just be sitting there watching Beauty and the Beast on repeat over and over and over and over. And so I practically have the movie memorized. If you ever find yourself on who wants to be a millionaire and you have a Beauty and the Beast question. I am the person to call. Okay? Now you know that. All right? But there's this scene at the beginning of the movie where, uh, where Belle sort of becomes, you know, a dream girl to a guy like me. She's not just pretty, but she shows up at the bookstore and she wants to read. Wow. And of course, this makes her a cast off in the whole city. What a weird girl. She wants to read books. Gaston, the guy going after her, says that women, sh- you know, essentially women should be in the kitchen and not reading. Reading gives them ideas. You see, none of the women laugh at that one. <laughs> see, but Belle goes and she wants a book and the books, book source guy says, oh, we haven't gotten a new book since yesterday. And she goes, all right, well, I'll pick this one. And he says, well, you've already read that one twice. And she says in response, oh, but think about this book. Far out places, daring sword fights, magic spells, a prince and spies. It's my favorite. That's what she says. That sounds like an interesting book, doesn't it? Could it get any better than that? There's a lot of action in a movie like that. A lot of fascinating characters. A, a lot of drama, it sounds like. But when I think about that line, I, I sort of think about the Bible, to be honest. You know the Bible has all those things in it? Every last one of those things. It's got magicians in Acts that, uh, that Paul needs to confront. It's got spies in Joshua. Joshua. It's got princes up and down the Old Testament. There's daring uh, sword fights. Yeah, I'm sure there are swords, but certainly encounters between individuals like David and Goliath. Far out places. You think of the places that Paul and the apostles were called to after Jesus. All those things that sound like such an exciting book is found in our Bible. And here's the weird thing about it. We don't read this book! Right? We, I mean, we, 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 we memorize stuff. I, I, listen, listen, I, I mean, we can all be guilty of this, so don't feel guilty, okay? But you know, we memorized our Bible verses when we were in Sunday school and we we're 12, and so when someone asks you a question, you still got that Bible verse memorized, so you're just able to throw something out there to prove that you know your Bible. But it's all about saving face, It's all about looking like I know what's in the Bible, and it's not about actually opening that thing up and seeing if there's something new to be said to you. One of my favorite parts about preaching is that I read the same old stuff over and over and over, and something new hits me each time. This is also one of my favorite things about watching a movie for the second time. Have you ever watched a movie, gotten to the conclusion, and then like three months later popped it in again saying that was the best movie ever, and you see all these things on the way through that foreshadow to the ending that meant nothing to you the first time? And you watch that movie again and you're like, whoa! Whoa! the bible it, it does this the writing is fascinating the storytelling is amazing the adventures are exciting and yet we just have 8 of them in our house all of them with 3 inches thick of dust on top of them why do we not read our bible anymore are we are we thinking that something new can't happen are we afraid that it's too difficult to comprehend why is it that we don't read the Bible anymore? I'm going to tell a story this morning that I think is an exciting story in the Bible. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to try to paint the picture for you. And it's a story that you all know, all right? I- I'll be surprised if many of you don't know this story, but perhaps I'm wrong. The story goes like this. For six years, the Midianites were defeating the Israelites over and over over again. The Israelites, of course, constantly find themselves beaten by foreign nations, and this is no different again. But on the seventh year, a judge rises up as the head of the Israelite army. His name was Gideon. And Gideon is blessed with 32,000 troops. That is a lot of men. 32,000 troops should be able to win a war with 32,000 men, especially in this day. And they begin to march to face the Midianites, and Gideon's looking at the, all these proud, strong, strapping young men, and he thinks, our, our six-year drought is over. And God says to him, you know, I think you got too many, Gideon. Too many? Do you think, do you think Eisenhower in World War II ever thought, I've got too many men to do D-Day? This is not what commanders think. But God says, There are too many. Why don't you go and ask them? Any of them, if any of them are trembling in fear, just go home. So Gideon does it. Marches up in front of his 32,000 men. He says, Hey, if any of you are afraid, why don't you just go home? 22,000 men do a 180 and head back to their mommies. And Gideon's like, whoa, that, that didn't work, God. <laughs> we should cut this down by two-thirds. How are we going to do it with 10,000? We look like that ragtag bunch that lost last year. Oh, man. And so Gideon marches further on, and God comes to him once again and says, you've still got too many. And Gideon, I just imagine, says, no, I don't. I've got somewhere between just enough and not enough. What do you mean I have too many? And God says, why don't you you bring them down to the water and do this for me. All the ones that lay down and stick their face in the water to drink, send them home. And those who get down on their knee and cup the water and lap it like a dog, I want you to keep those men. Oh, okay. Okay. See, when I read that story, I start thinking, what would I do if I walked down to water? Would I? I don't know. I don't know. But sure enough, they go there. 10,000 men line up along the water. And 300 cup their hands and lap it like a dog. And Gideon's probably looking at this. Can you imagine how few people 300 is in the midst of 10,000? I mean, that's just, that's just a few people. You've got to, like, see past hundreds of people to see that one who's out there doing it the way that God told the call. And Gideon starts picking them, and he probably felt like he had 30 people left. And he gathers them around, he counts 300, and he says, you guys are it. Here we go. And to the other 9,700, they go off to join the 22,000. And Gideon marches on with a faithful 300. And they arrive at the Midian camp, and they all surround them and begin to blow horns and break clay jars. That's all they do. That is their game plan. And what begins to happen is, it's shocking on the one hand, but for those of us who trust God, it's not. The Midianites freak out and begin to pierce each other with their swords. And then they begin to run off in the distance, terrified, and the six-year drought ends. That's, that's a good story. I mean, that's worth reading, right? That's a fascinating story. But this story has come to my attention a lot lately. The 300. Particularly came to my attention once again yesterday when uh, we, were at, we were at a district training day and listening to pastors talk about vision. One, one particular pastor of Newport Ritchie, right up the road from us, says that, that uh, for people in the church that can't jump on the vision, she has been filling churches all across Newport Ritchie with people who love Jesus but can't get behind the vision of the church. And I was like, whoa, that's bold. That's bold. But then I began to think, it's that's, that's kind of how God operated here, isn't it? He could, have, he could have built something big, and he could have overpowered the people. God could have won the war with 30,000, but he wills it down to the faithful 300, the people that were right for the job. And the people that could catch that vision of Gideon. Listen, do you have enough bravery to stand around an army with nothing but horns and clay? Do you have enough bravery to do that? I I don't know that just in a vacuum I have enough bravery to do that. I'm not real interested in going and surrounding a few terrorists with some clay and with a horn, okay? You know what I'm saying? But those 300 caught the vision of God for this particular battle. They caught the vision of God. And they rallied around that. And God blessed that. God blessed that. God doesn't need big crowds to do big things. God needs people that are in tune with his vision and who are faithful to follow him. Do we have that amongst us? It's difficult question time. What are we doing here? Why why are we here this morning? I mean, listen, I'm not stupid. I know how people are today. They're, They're out on the lake, or they're having a barbecue, or they're hungover from last night's party. There's lots of things you can do on a Sunday morning. But you're here. That's a good thing. But why are you here? Is it routine? Is it what you're supposed to do? Is it how your mama raised you? Why are you here this morning? Not just why are you in church, but why are you here? It just so happens, as Larry Dennis reminded us yesterday morning, he asked us, he asked us, if your church closed down tomorrow, if he came into this church and closed us down tomorrow, would our community miss us? Is there anything about your ministry, our ministry, our programs, our anything that they would miss? Would they miss us? I mean, we could say, well, what about our worship service? There's a very pink church right over there that they could go to if they had to find a church in their neighborhood. Would we be missed? What are we doing? What are we doing? as the 300. I think it's great that this story is 300 too, because our attendance every Sunday looks a whole lot like 300. So if we could just put ourselves into exactly those army, what is it that we're conquering? What is it that we're doing? What is the vision that God is giving the leadership of this church and that we are gathering around? And do we believe in it? Are we ready to charge into a world that can be hostile with God's vision for us? Are we ready to go? Or are we here for me? Who's in charge of this service today? Me? You? Or are we here to see what God has fresh and new for us today? Church is not... It just at some point became about taste. It became about taste. I go to that church because I like the people. I go to that church because they play the music I like. I go to that church because it's the closest one to me. And at some point, we quit going to churches because God has called me there, and God has called us to be active in his world together. What is God calling us to do? The other thing I want to say, uh, there are two things I want to say about this story, sort of to wrap it up before we move on. Two things. One is this. The reason we're told in Judges chapter 6, right before the story in Judges chapter 7, is that the reason the Midianites kept beating the Israelites is because God saw sin in the camp. We're told that explicitly. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Every year the Midianites beat the Israelites because there was sin in the camp. Every year. And and I feel, and I could be wrong here, I could be sensing incorrectly, but I feel like we're sort of on a string of defeats in our church. We haven't had a massive victory lately. It's been a, a tough few years Before I got here, wondering where the pastor was going to come from and who that was going to be, and then it's been a tough year since I've been here because we're in the middle of an economic downturn, and because, you know, that pastor's young, and he's a punk, and he changed the foyer. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. We're on a string of what feels like some losses. And I just wonder in this story, what is the sin in our camp? Is it idolatry? Am I the God that this church must serve? And I'm not talking about me. I'm asking you to ask yourself that question. Is it idolatry? Does this church exist to serve you? Or do you exist to serve God through this church? Is that the sin of us? Is the sin gossip, anger? Is is the gossip taking the name of the Lord in vain? And by that, I don't mean I just hit my hand with a, a hammer and I said, oh my, fill in the blank. But have we taken the name of God and said, I am God's child. I am a Christian. I am like Jesus Christ and acted nothing like it. What is the sin in our camp? If there is sin in our camp, it must be confessed. It must be confessed. Absolutely must be confessed. The second thing I want to say is I want to talk about the difference between uniformity and unity based on this story. I imagine when the 30,000 men got together, they put them in uniforms to mark them out as the Israelite army. You can think throughout history about the very famous military uniforms. You can imagine uh, the blues of the French, the reds of the British. You can imagine the ragtag uniforms that you hear about of the American Revolution, the greens of the United States Army. You can imagine what those uniforms look like. I imagine those 30,000 had a uniform as well. But what does uniform really mean? It seems in the church today, in the people of God throughout history, that we want uniformity. Uniformity is comfortable right? If we sit in a service and everyone likes things just like I like it, and everyone believes just like I believe, and everyone votes in the Florida primary just like I vote, there's no need to argue with those people. We just get to smile at each other and enjoy life. But does God really call us to uniformity? Uniformity was a problem in my childhood, and Debbie's going to show you a picture about the problem of my childhood. They were a big problem in my childhood. For those of you that follow baseball, you know that they went 86 years without winning a World Series. I sat one night in absolute anger, convinced that I would never see them win a World Series. The Red Sox were very famous in the 80s for being a team known as 25 Guys and 25 Cabs. That's what they used to say about them, 25 guys and 25 cabs. And what that meant is none of them liked each other. In fact, most of them couldn't stand each other. They came, they put on their uniform, they looked good, and they went home in 25 different directions. None of them had dinner with each other, and none of them talked to each other, no one knew each other's kids' names, no one was friends. They were all angry and bitter at each other. And I say to you that it's not shocking that a team like that couldn't win the World Series. It's not shocking, is it? But they all put on the uniform. They all looked alike. They all put on the facade that they were in it together because they had the same red shirt on with the same lettering. They put on the facade. They put on the facade that there were 25 guys. But I tell you, I I like the Red Sox uniforms, but let me show you a few ugly uniforms. You know, just because you have uniforms on doesn't really mean that anything good is happening amongst you. Look at that uniform. Any of you remember that one? Oh, that one is just hideous. That's the Houston Astros from the 80s. This is one of my favorites. This team was created right after Jurassic Park. Uh, But that's an ugly uniform, oh man. This is to me the ugliest uniform ever, I think. It's got the skyline of Denver up against some sort of creepy rainbow and some mountains. And then this one, this one's another one of my favorites. This was the 1980s White Sox where the owner actually made their players wear shorts and still demanded that they slide into second base. This is a professional team. This isn't some softball team from Chicago. This is a professional team that was wearing shorts on the field. Just because things are uniform doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't. God calls us not to uniformity. God calls us to unity. And unity sometimes means that you have to learn to get along with someone that doesn't agree with you. Sometimes unity means that you have to sit in a service with music that isn't exactly your style. But you know what? And vice versa. Sometimes they got to sit in your service too and listen to your music. Right? Unity means that you might have a Republican or a Democrat on the other side of you in the service. I know. Unity means love in spite. Unity means love in spite. And so that brings us to my final point today. And that's, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 8. And I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's only 13 verses, so it's not that painfully long. But I think at some point in the church, and I'm not talking about this church, and I'm not even talking about our lifetimes, okay? At some point, we lost sight of what God was really trying to make us into. And we made the ultimate goal knowledge, what we know. I've read so that I know. And we've elevated the people who are smart in the church, the people who know the Bible. I had a guy in my last church who I couldn't say enough great things about, but he always kind of like kicked the ground and said, yeah, I just don't know the Bible as much as I know as some people do. But this man's heart was filled with love and service and kindness and I said I said Kevin it's not about knowing the Bible it's about knowing Jesus it's about knowing Jesus and Kevin knows Jesus let me tell you he knows Jesus and he reads the Bible and he doesn't always get it but you can see how God is still forming him through the way he reads you can't come to this Bible seeking knowledge You can't come to this Bible-seeking knowledge. You need to come to this Bible that God may reveal himself to you. Let's read these words in 1 Corinthians 8 and see what it is that the Apostle Paul says here, and it may just jar you a little bit if you focus closely on what he's saying. Would you stand with me as we read these great words from a great, great epistle? Now... Now, the Apostle Paul says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat. And know better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees that you have this knowledge, whatever that knowledge is, here it's eating an idol's temple, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what he has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what we eat or do or say or learn or yell or gossip about causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never do that again so that it will not cause him to fall. You may be seated. The very bottom line of what this is saying here, the absolute bottom line is love one another. Love one another. Don't tell them that they're wrong. Okay? Don't embarrass them with your knowledge. Don't tell them that there's a way things ought to be. If you see something in someone else and it strikes you as weak, love them into strength don't argue with them into strength don't talk down to them do not call them out do not embarrass them do not hurt their feelings love them into strength i'm not just telling you this as some sort of book that i read in college i just read this out of the bible to you if you've got some sort of special knowledge that's great It's great. Knowledge is a great thing. Listen, I've been in school for like 30 years of my 30-year life. I believe in knowledge. Knowledge is great. But more important than that is love. What does it matter if I can wow the entire world with what I've learned if people can't know that I love? This message of Jesus Christ is loved into people. It's not kicked into people. And if it's kicked into people, they'll just go around the world kicking it into others. But those who have been shown love will turn inside out towards the world and love the world as Jesus did. I have a challenge for you because I really, really, really suspect that we've gotten to the place that we know, that we just know. We don't have proof. We don't really have Bible verses, except for just like little ones that make our whole point instead of reading the entire Bible. Uh, I really believe that we know without actually reading the Bible to learn who God is. And so, I think that it's important in 2012 that we start reading the Bible again. I said that in my very first sermon of this year, and I believe it again now. We need to start reading the Bible again. We need to. And we need to do it together. And so, this week, we've created a plan for us to read the Bible this year. Not the entire thing, but most of it, okay? Most of the Bible, especially what we thought were the high points for us. And when you read the Bible this year, and this is I'm not going to hand this out to everyone, I'm going to make you stand up. Walk down and get it, so that you are making a commitment of accountability to the people in this church, that you will read the Bible this year. Okay? So you stand up and walk here, and people see that you're doing it. All right? That's accountability. If you're going to stand up and come and take this, do it. Do what you say you're going to do. But we've broken this down to see how God interacts with humanity. Okay, that's what we want you to see when you read the Bible this year. How is it that God is dealing with his people? Because over and over and over again, the Bible is filled with despicable, sinful people. And we go to the Bible and reread those stories and say, well, if King David did it, then I can do it too. We assume that the Bible exists to justify our behavior. The Bible does not exist to justify our behavior. The Bible exists to demonstrate God's love for transformation. What happens in these stories, these books, is God coming to very unlikely, very despicable, very sinful people and loving them anyways. God then transforms their lives so that they are productive for the kingdom of God. They catch a vision of God's activity in the world and they jump aboard that wave and they live in God's activity in the world. Go and see the people that God has called out and what he does when he transforms their lives. And I tell you today that if you read these stories and see the way that God lives in this world, your life will be changed even if it's been changed before it'll be changed again i'm going to put these down on the altar and i invite you to come if you're willing to commit with me to read these chapters it is it is between 16 and 50 chapters a month so it's not terribly oppressive plan the 50 is genesis okay so it's just a book it's not my fault that the book is long all right between 16 and 50 chapters a month. That's all we're asking for, and this covers about about two-thirds of the books of the Bible and almost half of it. All right? So I invite you to just stand right now. If God's calling you to read the Bible new once again, come and take one. As you're coming, I'm gonna tell one last thing because I may as well. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the Apostle Peter. But not just any one story, it's the entire story that sort of gets me excited about Peter. If you follow the life of Peter, he starts out he starts out as just as a common fisherman. Just taking over his dad's business. Jesus goes to him and calls him into ministry. And Peter begins to minister. But it seems at every turn that Peter doesn't get Jesus. Peter doesn't understand Jesus. He has no idea what he's saying. What Jesus is saying does not fit Peter's understanding of God. Peter feels he has knowledge of who God is. And is sort of angry that Jesus doesn't fit His understanding of what God does in the world. And so Peter begins to push back a little bit on God from time to time. He begins to put push back on Jesus. And Jesus pushes back. And eventually, even when Peter isn't in a great state, Jesus sends Peter out to do healings. But Peter fails. When Peter comes back, Jesus doesn't just treat him like he's a failed apprentice and kick him to the curb he begins to pour himself out more into Peter. And then it gets to the point where Jesus has to go to die, which, by the way, Jesus has told Peter at least three times. And Peter still doesn't get it and draws the sword to cut off the ear of the guardsman. He still doesn't get it. Jesus dies, and Peter still doesn't expect the resurrection. Peter sees Jesus risen from the dead, and he still joins with the disciples in Acts 1, saying, Is this now the time when you're going to come and restore Israel? Well, no, that's not what Jesus has been talking about. You and I know that. Pentecost comes, and Jesus goes and he preach, or Peter goes and he preaches this great sermon. And for the first time, with the Holy Spirit in him, Peter's effective. But it's not long again until Acts 9, where Peter finds himself in a dream arguing with God about who it is that God wants to save. And a sheet comes down from heaven. And Peter finally sort of begins to see that God loves even the unclean. There's, there eventually becomes a moment at the end of Peter's life that's not recorded in the Bible, but I like to talk about it a lot because it fascinates me. But Peter is put to death after, after the canon is closed and the stories are stopped told in the Bible. And he's sentenced to crucifixion. And Peter says to the Roman authorities, I refuse to die the way that my Lord has died. Crucify me upside down so that I would bring no shame to my Lord. And he did. They turned the cross upside down in an X. They put two of them into the ground and Peter died suffocating upside down. You see how... Peter didn't just arrive and go. Peter had to be worked on. God had to keep filling himself. Even the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost did not make Peter a finished product. There was work to be done. And Peter kept on being formed and shaped and molded by God and his Spirit. And more and more and more, he let go of who he assumed God was and made himself open for God to do something new and to speak something fresh into his life. This is like Jesus' best friend, okay? You are not closer to Jesus than Peter was. Do you understand that? You do not have a more special knowledge than Peter did. And yet Peter was consistently in need of work. And God kept doing it. And Peter, Jesus' best friend kept allowing himself to be open to God to do something new in him. Read these stories again. Read them. I hope that you are serious by picking it up. That you are willing to read these stories with fresh and new eyes this year. That God may say something new to you. That God may do something new to you. I assume that with every breath that God gives us, it's his invitation for us to do more for him. It starts by reading the Bible, but don't read the Bible so that you can be smart. Read the Bible so that you can know God and that God can make you his vessel for this world. Would you stand with me? I'm running way over. I know, I'm sorry. Some of you have uh, places to be. Some of you have classes to teach. I'm sorry, um, but let's, let's pray together. God, we need something fresh to happen amongst us. Here we are, the 300 of Victory Church of the Nazarene. And God, I, I say to you, with all the danger that this is, that I would be pleased to be like Gideon, leading 300 people ready to charge your enemy in this world. God, give us a vision for your power. Give us a vision for your love. God, I'm, I'm sick and tired of of my taste and my desire. I'm sick and tired of I'm sick and tired of hoping that it's songs in the bulletin that I like. I don't want to sing songs that I like anymore, God. I want authentic encounters with your spirit. I believe that this is the cry of the heart of our people. I'm not just saying this as pastor, God. I believe our people want authentic encounters with your spirit. God, pour yourself out upon us. And if we never sing another song, if I never preach another message, may this just be a place where your spirit lives and people are set on fire with a vision to see this world saved, lives transformed, and your love to be the very hallmark of this neighborhood. God, it is not about us. We do not exist to maintain a building. We do not exist to have Sunday morning services. We exist to be a great commission people. We are ready to go, and we are tired of doing church for me. God, transform our mindsets. Transform our mindsets, God, so that just like you, You could have created us to just sit around you and tell you how great you are all day. But you created us with free will and have given us, your church, a mandate to go. And we hear you, God. We hear you this morning. We hear you. Send us out. Fill us up so that we may go ready to love the world for the sake of of transformation your name we pray amen you are dismissed go from this place demonstrate love to your neighbor say hi to someone in the hall that was loud and bothered you show the love of christ to the world